Our reading today is an excerpt from The Sacred Playground, which is written by my very dear friend and colleague, Mary Ann de Blasi. She is the ministerial intern at the Winchester Unitarian Society in Winchester, Massachusetts. And we both um, shared a rich congregational lay ministry life at our home congregation at First Parish in Lexington, Massachusetts. So that is our connection. And this excerpt is from the first sermon that she preached to her internship congregation. She was talking about relationships and she asked, for people who have walked through the doors of this church, I wonder what brought you here the first time? And if this isn't your first visit, what keeps you coming back again and again? I can tell you one of the reasons why I keep coming back through the doors of Unitarian Universalist faith communities. It's because for me, church is a sacred playground. It's a place where people of different talents, perspectives, and passions come together to co-create something bigger than any one of us can create on our own. Church is a playground and it's full of fabulous playmates. In my 13 years of being a Unitarian Universalist and being a congregant and going to general assembly, attending regional meetings and workshops, and now becoming a ministerial intern, all of it feels like playing on a sacred playground. But what makes us sacred? Covenant is a big part of it. At the foundation of our faith, we are a covenantal community. We are intentional about making covenants where we promise how to be in relationship with each other. Many committee meetings begin by reviewing and renewing a covenant of how we promise to be together and do our work together. Each covenant is unique, and yet they all speak of our common values, affirming the inherent worth and dignity of each person, honoring our commitments, and speaking the truth with love. Covenants build a foundation by intentionally choosing how we want to be in relationship. You could say that covenants are the rules of the sacred playground, how we promise to play together. Covenants help to create a space where we feel safe to be authentically ourselves and be valued for all of who we are. They give us enough of a safety net that we are free to experiment, to be creative, discover, explore, and take risk. Children play boldly and freely most of the time. It's what they naturally do. As adults, we can become so skilled at doing what we're good at that we tend to limit our playful natures from taking risks that challenge us to grow personally and spiritually. Sometimes it is when we're unsure if we can or even if we want to do something, but we end up saying yes anyways, that we discover new parts of ourselves. One of my favorite ways to play, she says, is on the church playground is being on committees. Yep, I'm one of those people who loves committees. You can imagine this endeared her to her internship congregation immediately. Each one left me have a different experience on the playground. 
playing in the sandbox with one, swinging on the swing with another, and going down really fast slides on others. I had the freedom to play anywhere I wanted to on the church playground and to develop new skills, learn new things, and play with fabulous playmates. Every new experience was a spark of growth in spiritual leadership. She goes on to say that what is also true on playgrounds is they are not always full of happy, fun, and games. There are times when we may push and shove and hurt each other. And being in covenantal community is not about being perfect. It's about showing up in, as our imperfect, messy, and sometimes cranky human selves, and then recommitting ourselves to how we aspire to be in relationship. It's about being accountable for words and actions with our playmates, and about calling each other back into covenant when we've been hurt by another. There are times on the playground when there is divisiveness and conflict, and it's frustrating. We may even want to pick up our toys and leave the playground. It is during these challenging times when we need to lean most heavily into our promise to be together in relationship with each other, even when it's messy and hard. It's during these challenging times, not the happy times, when we may grow and learn the most. Challenging times call forth more strength, wisdom, resilience, leadership, and compassion, individually and collectively, than we may have known we were capable of. There are many ways to play on the church playground. For some, social action is what helps their heart and spirit grow. For others, it's making music, or maybe it's offering hospitality, or teaching our children, or repairing a light fixture. A multitude of ways exist to play on a sacred playground of church. And each of us has our own ways of discovering new parts of ourselves, whether it's here at church or in another place. There are many paths and many ways to personal and spiritual growth. Within Unitarian Universalism and congregational life is where I found a sacred playground. Church is a big place where we get to play with people who have big hearts and willing hands and heal our own hearts and spirits in the process. The words of Marianne de Blasey. I wish you could hear her tell it in person because she's very vivacious, so. I tried to channel that, but you never know. I ask you now to take your hymnals and join me in responsive reading number 728, Blessed Are Those. And I'm going to ask the people on the driveway side to read the words in regular uh, typeface and the forest side, or wooded side, to read the italics. Let's begin. Blessed are those
Selling organs, indeed. <clears throat> this evening is the evening of Epiphany. I wonder, has anybody here grown up celebrating Epiphany? that's not surprising because it's one of the most overlooked holidays of the church year in the Christian tradition in North America. According to Reverend Diane Deming, who is a Presbyterian minister and writer, Epiphany was first observed in second century Egypt as both the day of Jesus' birth and baptism. So December 25th wasn't established as a separate celebration of a nativity until the, around the year 336. And it's never been universally celebrated on that day. So among many Eastern churches, you will find that Christmas is observed on January 6th, the Epiphany, which is tomorrow. The word means manifestation or showing or less literally, a moment of recognition. We use the word colloquially when we talk about experiencing a sudden insight. I had an epiphany. Christian scholars and theologians suggest that epiphany celebrates God's manifestation of Jesus in three ways. The first, the fact that Jesus came to all people and we see this reflected in the story of the wise men from the East who are foreigners coming to bow before the new king that God is offering to the, to the world, not just one race or nation, a Messiah. Scholars point to the second manifestation which showed Jesus' divinity in the story of the, the heavens that open up, the spirit of God descends like a dove and rests on his shoulders and a voice proclaimed Jesus as God's son after he was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And then the scholars point to a third manifestation or something about things coming in threes, if you've noticed. And that is Jesus as a miracle worker. The story of where he changes water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana, which was his first public work of miracles. So these three events, the Magi's visit, his bat, Jesus' baptism, and the miracle are traditionally associated with January 6th in many churches. However, the majority of customs associated with the holiday in the Western world relate to the three kings, the we three kings of Orient are, the Magi, the wise men, the astrologers, depending on your text. But the thing is that much of what we think we know is based on tradition and not scripture. So legends have fleshed out things, giving them names and homelands and even experiences. But when you look at the facts, should we agree to call what is written in the Gospels facts, you notice that in the Gospel of Matthew, the visit of the wise man occurs not at the stable, the nativity, but at a house and most biblical scholars attest that the visitors arrived in Bethlehem as much as two years after Jesus' birth. So we have this narrative that has, has meshed together or mashed up the shepherds and the wise king, but in fact they're very separate, discrete narratives. 
And somehow I can't help but think that arriving to pay respect to a two-year-old toddler would be a very different scene than a silent night with the babe tucked away in a manger. Like, would the wise men arrive to find that this great child was having temper tantrums and precociously turning over tables? I sort of wonder. We'll never know. In Western Europe and in Great Brittany, Britain, uh, many epiphany customs include a traditional epiphany party. One version I've heard of goes like this. Guests arrive and are asked to remove one shoe, so they hobble around in the evening with one shoe on to remind them of the long and difficult journey that the wise men, the magi, the wise people, took to Bethlehem. And they line their shoes up against the wall. Of course, the party continues. They have refreshments, including a king's cake. And in the king's cake are usually dried beans baked into the cake. And whoever finds a bean in their piece of cake is crowned king or queen for the rest of the party. So out come the costumes. In some traditions, those who are now donning the costumes and crowns leave the room and the playfulness begins. People go around and hide little gifts in those shoes. And they, they split off into groups and they get to talking about what kind of entertainment they're going to provide, you know, what kind of a skit or joke or song are they going to sing for the royal people when they come back. So the royal members come back and they say, where is the Christ child? And everyone responds with joy. He is here indeed among us. Come and celebrate together. The wise men distribute the gifts by matching up the shoes. And there's more entertainment, music, dance, fellowship. Now, if you're sticking around for the potluck lunch, and I hope you will, do keep your shoes on. But be on the lookout for who among us are the wise people, and who among us are the Christ childs, and what gifts you bring to the world and this congregation. And be careful when you chomp down on that delicious galette de roi that you don't hurt your teeth on a bean. Now, I realize that in religiously liberal traditions and in humanist, atheist, and agnostic circles, it can be tempting to just throw out the whole epiphany story, the baby, the bathwater, the whole thing. But when we take a more liberal interpretation of a Christmas story and the, and the epiphany, we can still glean some wisdom and meaning. If you were here Christmas Eve, you know that we can interpret these stories to mean that each child embodies a divine light, and that Christmas is an opportunity to welcome and revisit the incoming of Christ, becoming Christ-like in our actions and dispositions. And that together, this congregation, just like the early Christ followers, can think of itself as a manifestation of the body in a plural sense of the word, the body of Christ on earth. That we ourselves are on a lifelong journey to follow the teachings of the man, Jesus, 
and to move in the world as wonderful counselors and defenders of peace. We take up the work to support the broken, to welcome the stranger, to celebrate what is worthy, and to do the work of justice and love. We also look to each other for mutual support and fellowship. And we expect our congregation to be a place of health and healing, an oasis and refuge in the midst of the demands and stresses of daily life, a place where people are kinder and gentler. We know that this congregation, just like those of the early church, functioned best when many hands make light work and when the gifts and values of those present are the impetus for the ministry of the whole. I think we can agree that whether it's given by God or a source of life, we have each come into the world with a range of different gifts, different abilities, different dispositions, and that all of those are important to the integrity of the whole. It's a concept that we find in the Apostle Paul's address to the Christ followers in Corinth when he speaks about appreciating a diversity of gifts within a unity of purpose. And it's a concept we discover in nature and humankind in many ways, in our ecosystems, our interdependent web of existence of which we are but a part, in theories of personality development, and in organizational and congregational systems. The truth is that hard work is necessary to make the congregation a place of refuge and rest. And this is a tension and irony that always exists in congregations, that the need for hard work can push members towards diligent service, and that that kind of service can take away from the sense of rest and refuge that people need. After all, there are so many tasks and jobs to be done. You might be sitting there reviewing them yourself right now. In a small congregation especially, folk often wear many different hats at different times, filling different roles, serving different functions, which can lead to the temptation to overfunction, to multitask, and to spin more place than is reasonable. And this can set us up for inefficiency, or for burnout, or for the sad reality that sometimes just picking up your toys and leaving the sacred playground does seem like the best idea and the only way out. Because how else will you find the rest and refuge that you need? In a small congregation, we may become so accustomed to working through informal and relational channels that longtime members might lose sight of what is not obvious or well communicated to newcomers or visitors who are eager to become more involved. And newcomers and visitors might not even know where to begin to get the lay of the land, to get more information, to get details, to find out how to enter into the inner circles of a small group. How much better when we are hesitant to ask for help and just default to doing it ourselves to pause and invite another person to help or another two or three people. 
how much better to trade urgency and efficiency for taking the time to nurture relationships and build a more inclusive, sustainable, and resilient congregational system. And how much better, thinking of, <coughs> of my friend Marianne, how much better to swap the work that we might engage begrudgingly for work that we approach with joy and curiosity and creativity. Dare I say playfulness? I know it can be easy to think of all that must be accomplished to keep this place alive and thriving as one long predetermined list of tasks and objects that need to be filled as soon as possible and recruit people to fill those slots. And while there are certainly, er certainly areas where that is somewhat true, I invite you to approach the work of the congregation, the work of your congregation, from a gifts-based ministry perspective. I see in the congregation a place where people can come to develop their gifts and capacity to minister to one another and to the world at large. Ask yourself, in the spirit of playfulness, creativity, and even thinking big, what is the ministry you want to experience here? How do you wish to receive and to give? What is it that makes you come alive? What's that dream or passion that moves you? The one that you're eager to learn more about or the one that you're eager to share more widely? Ask yourself how can you support one another in identifying and strengthening your spiritual gifts and discerning how best to bring your passions and desires into the world. This needs to be a place where you can thrive during hard times. What is it you need for that to happen? How can this congregation be the incubator or the container or the sacred playground where dreams and visions for a better world here coming from you can manifest themselves. I've been thinking about these topics for quite a while, and I just happened to notice yesterday that January is National Mentoring Month. I have a wonderful mentor for preliminary fellowship. And so when I saw this, I thought, wow, that's news to me. I didn't even know there was such a month. And that's good news. It's meant to celebrate the power of relationships and to be an impetus for people to recruit mentors to work with youth and young adults. But it got, got me to thinking, what if we were to think more broadly and consider all of us to be potential mentors and mentees, regardless of our age brackets? The best of mentors or buddies or colleagues or leaders are those that invite us into fuller, deeper, richer relationship. They listen well, they reflect back, they meet us with curiosity and encourage us. They accompany us, guide us, coach us, mentor us, helping us to come intuitively upon our personal strengths. 
I would say that those who have these skills come bearing very valuable gifts. Now, my experience of you as a congregation is that you are a very generous and life-affirming one, and I see the many gifts that you give to sustain this community. The gifts of your financial and material resources, and our offerings, our charitable drives, our stewardship campaign, fundraising activities. I see you giving the gifts of your time and attention to provide hospitality, craft meaningful worship services, to gather in support of personal and spiritual development, to extend kind words and caring, keep the building safe and secure and comfortable, and tend to all those governance details. Your presence, your history, your steadfastness, and your commitment to keeping this congregation alive and engaged in the world is a gift that, as the ad set goes, is priceless. And I believe it is well appreciated by many who are or have been here. In closing, I want to leave you with these prayerful words by the Reverend Richard Trudeau. Help us make the church a refuge from the world, a place where the rules are different, a place where no experience is necessary, where people are encouraged to risk new things, a place where people always feel that their efforts have been worthwhile and their energy well spent, a place where, as in a children's baseball league, everyone gets to play. A place where no one feels invisible. A place where no one is bored. If a person isn't interested in what the minister is talking about today, may he or she be excited by the music or by a conversation at coffee hour. A place where people are touched, if not by something said, then perhaps by something sung or by the light coming through the windows, or by the sense that the people who come here support one another. A place where everyone feels safe. Safe to follow their thoughts wherever they lead, safe to believe whatever they must, and safe to share whatever is on their minds and whatever is in their hearts. A place where our wills can lift up again, where we can be refreshed and renewed so that when we return to the world with our batteries recharged, we can help transform the world into a place where the rules are different. May it be so. Amen.